And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Hey, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 12, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 34. This is our Certainty in a World of Doubt teaching series, working our way through the Gospel of Luke. We're going to talk about contentment this morning. Also grab your sermon notes out. There was a man whose name became synonymous with the hunger for more. He wanted more wealth, so he built one of the greatest financial empires of his day. He wanted more pleasure, so he seduced or paid for the most glamorous women money could buy. He wanted more adventure, so he set airspeed records and designed, built, and piloted the world's most unique aircraft. He wanted more power, so he acquired political clout that was the envy of senators. He wanted more glamour, so he crashed Hollywood, owned studios, courted stars. When his life ended, he was a figure of Gothic horror ready for the grave, emaciated only 120 pounds stretched out over his six-foot-four-inch frame, thin, scraggly beard that reached midway onto his sunken chest, hideously long nails in grotesque yellowed corkscrews. Many of his teeth were black, rotting stumps. A tumor was beginning to emerge from the side of his head. Innumerable needle marks. Howard Hughes was an addict, a billionaire junkie. How many knew I was talking about him as I was describing him here? Here's the question. If Howard Hughes had pulled off one more deal, made one more million, tasted one more thrill, would it have been enough? Would it have been enough? She was the most adulated of women. Every woman envied her. Every man wanted her. She had beauty, money, wealth, and so much fame that even four decades after her death, when hundreds of her personal possessions were auctioned off in Southern California, they were worth millions. But Marilyn Monroe died alone, died of her own hand, Here's the question. If she had had one more hit movie, <clears throat> one more magazine cover, one more sexual relationship with a powerful man, would it have been enough? Would it have been enough? I love my wife, but here's another question. If she were to take a credit card and go to Scottsdale Fashion Square Neiman Marcus, for one day of unlimited shopping, acquire every shoe she liked, every purse she desired, every dress she admired, and every piece of jewelry her heart longed for, would it be enough? We'll never know. <laughs> because there was no way I would ever do that. <laughs> Hey, take a look at your sermon notes. More will never be enough. More will never be enough because we were made for something that earth does not offer. Did you get that? 
Here's the two most important points probably of this teaching, what we're gonna talk about here today as we, as we talk about contentment. I mean, there's, there's a lot of other points that are really important, but this is big. If you get this, you, you've got the message. More will never be enough because we were made for something that earth does not offer. Here's, here's, that, here's a really important point. The inconsolable human longing, we all have this, the inconsolable human longing is irrefutable evidence that we were made to find our deepest and most durable satisfaction in the riches of God's glory. Let's stand for closing prayer, okay? I mean, I almost want to do that because that's, that's it. So therefore, therefore, beware of covetousness. See the, the outline of the notes. Beware of covetousness. We'll talk about that. Signs of covetousness. We're all guilty of it. You'll certainly see signs in your own life as we work through that. And then how do you break the hold of covetousness? You break the hold of covetousness through contentment. We're going to talk about what that is. And so we got, a, we got a great study here this morning. This is a great text, and we'll unpack it with our notes. And so before we do that, would you bow your heads with me? Once again, let's go before the throne of grace. Father God, we are delighted to be here today. We were created by you, for you, to give glory to you. You are most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in you. Intimacy with you, intimacy with you is life's most satisfying reality. And yet too often we catch ourselves imagining how much greater life would be if we had more. We also quietly boast in our hearts when we, we see ourselves able to afford certain goods and inhabit certain places. Save our hearts from such shallowness and foolishness. Keep us from believing the lie of our society, of our adversary, of our sinful nature that money can be or buy our happiness, our satisfaction, our contentment. Help us not to be too puffed up or too deflated by how much or how, or how little of money we have. May we pity, may we pity those who have nothing more than their riches. Steady us with the knowledge of where true riches can be found. We ask these things in Jesus' beautiful and holy name and everyone said... Amen. So let's, let's walk through the text. Now, sometimes I just like to read through it. It's hard for me to read through it sometimes, though, because I have to comment. I'm going to do a lot of commenting on it this morning, okay? Just so beware. So we're going to take a little bit of time in this text. We're going to look at it, explore it. I'm going to have you look at certain things that stand out, that have stood out to me as I've studied it. So we begin reading chapter 12 of Luke, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Stop there, okay? Sorry. Got to stop there because that's ludicrous. That's absolutely ludicrous what he's asking for. And our prayers, our requests of God kind of betray us. They reveal really our heart. And that's what's happening here. I mean, this is the context of Jesus really walking through teaching about some unsearchable, incalculable, incomparable riches of, of the glory of, of the kingdom of God and, and all that we have in, in him. And here, this guy, this is what he's asking for. He's asking, Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. And, and see, he's guilty of what we're all guilty of. Oftentimes when we pray, we bring our list. We just hope that God will somehow fulfill our list when we're missing out on the best thing about prayer, and that's bringing our love and experiencing his love for us. You see, the deepest and most durable happiness, contentment, satisfaction is not, is not from God, it's in God, it's in God. 
It's knowing him. So whether or not he ever gives you whatever you ask for, it doesn't matter if you have him. That's why I had to stop, because he's, what he's asking for is just it's so much us. And it's profound what Jesus says here, very profound. Listen to how Jesus responds to him. So I, I want the inheritance. I'm getting ripped off. My brother's not passing the inheritance off to me. And, but he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? That's not, that's not why I came is what he's saying. And he said to them, this is a very profound verse, verse 15. This is worth memorizing and meditating on. Take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. Covetousness, we'll define it a little more uh, in a little bit more detail in a bit on our notes. But let me just say, it's just desiring after the things you don't have. So he says, be, be, uh, take care, be on your guard against desiring after the things that you don't have for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This is what he's saying. He's saying, it's not found in stuff. Life, fullness of life is not found in more things. It's not in, in accomplishments and the acquisition of more things and the achievements of life and look at all of my trophies and look at all my money and look at all that I have. That he's saying, that's not where life is found. But that's so contrary to our American way. And, and, and now Jesus is going to give us an interesting story. He's going to explain this by giving us a story. It's called the parable of the rich fool. And he's going to define for us, that, I mean, this is the epitome of the American dream. And so Jesus says, and he said to them, take care, be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness for, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentiful. And I want you to take note of how many personal pronouns are in this as he describes this, this guy. And he, there's the first one, thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. The word full here means without reason or reflection. You didn't think deep enough about your life. There's more to life than this. This night your soul will be required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Just take a moment here. Just imagine, imagine with me for a moment you are at this man's funeral and people are filing past his casket, and they're making the same foolish comment people always make at funerals. He looks so peaceful. Rigor mortis will tend to do that to you. <laughs> Death is net nature's way of telling you to slow down. And then they ask the same foolish question people ask when somebody rich dies. I wonder... I wonder how much he left. He left it all. Everybody always leaves it all. 
And so his friends and family built a large monument for him, and, and on it they wrote the words that best represented him, success and visionary and innovator and leader and entrepreneur. They buried his body. They went home. Then when it was dark, no one was around, the angel of the Lord was sent to this cemetery and came to this man's wonderful monument and traced with a finger the word God had chosen to summarize this wealthy, busy, respectable, successful man's life. You fool. The only eyes in the universe that matter the only eyes in the universe that matter looked at him and said, you fool, you wasted your life. Verse 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and, and is not rich toward God. So he's making this, Jesus is making this contrast. It's just, it's beautiful, it's amazing what he's saying here. And he's giving us, the, this is the real scoreboard. That's not the scoreboard. Here's the scoreboard. If you ever go to a Diamondbacks game and you show up late, your friends are already sitting in there, the game's already in, in progress, and what's the first thing you ask? What's the score? Because the score gives you reality. This guy thought he was in touch with reality, and the Bible says, no, 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 this is reality. Reality is being rich towards God. You notice the contrast here? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, that's one thing, or is rich toward God. So of course we need to look at that. What does that mean to be rich toward God? That's, there's where contentment is found. Now, it, it was interesting, as, as I was working through this, there's, did you count how many personal pronouns? There's about 15 personal pronouns. It was all about him. He thought he was a self-made man. Nobody's a self-made man or woman. <laughs> we'll talk a little bit more about that as we work through this. But, but he should have been thinking, wait a minute, man, there's, I've got a lot of wealth here, and, and how can I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and how can I love my neighbor as myself? How, how, can I, how can I leverage all that God has given me for his glory? Because that's why I'm here, is to, to live for his glory, and that's where I ultimately find my greatest satisfaction. But that's not what crosses his mind. That's not what he thinks about. In fact, the more money he gets, he's not asking, how can I raise my standard of, of giving, but how can I raise my standard of, of living? That's what he's saying. I, I found this interesting just within the last month. Anybody know who Derek Carr is? Derek Carr, anybody? Okay, Raiders. So we got any Raiders fans in the house? Okay. Okay, that's... that's. Hey, uh, stay away from Raiders fans, okay? We've got a few Raider fans here, and I, I can see that. Uh, could we have the security in here? <laughs> Any Raiders fans over here? Oh, there's one right all the, all the way in the back. That's, oh, that's right, I forgot. Okay, we got two. Could we get more security over here on this side? <laughs> so Derek Carr, this is the coolest thing ever. Derek Carr just signed the, the biggest contract in NFL history for a quarterback. He's a quality player, he's a good player. And uh, he signed the contract for $125 million over the next five years. And so they interviewed him. If you saw the interview, anybody see the interview? He said, what, what's the first thing you're going to do? What was the first thing that he said he was going to do? He's going to tithe. He's going to tithe. Isn't that amazing? And he said, and he, he also knows that through this, he's going to be able to. He wasn't thinking how I can raise my standard of of living, how can I raise my standard of giving? And he's thinking, he's saying, my wife and I can really bless a lot of people. So I tried to make contact with uh, Derek here this last week. 
And I was going to see if he wanted to transfer his membership over to Desert Breeze. But he hasn't gotten back with me yet. And I'm still waiting for that phone call back. But I'm just thinking, a tithe on $125 million, that's pretty decent. We could do a lot for God. <laughs> Sorry, I had to say that. But, but I'm, I'm just, and I don't know all the details about Derek Carr. He seems like a really a good guy. Seems like, I think he's a pretty decent Christian from what I've read and what I've seen. And yet it's so contrary. And yet this is really the epitome of the American dream, what's been defined here. Now, now this, is the, this is the diagnosis. He's given us the diagnosis. This is the root of our problem. It's, it's covetousness. This guy epitomizes that. It's the American dream. The next part that we're going to read here really gives us the cure. It's going to spell out and show us some of the details of our covetousness, but, but more importantly, it's going to give us the cure. Let's walk through this. So verse 22, and he said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. Now, anxiety is, you're going to see this about four or five times in this text. Anxiety is what drives our covetousness. We're just, we're fearful. We're anxious. We're worried. And, and the word anxious here means to seek to promote one's interest, uh, to be troubled with cares. It's, it really means to be uh, kind of split apart, drawn in a lot of different directions. And, and so I tell you, do not be anxious. In fact, he's just saying, stop being anxious. Don't be anxious. And you're going to see this over and over again. He's going to give us a reason why we shouldn't be anxious. He says, don't be anxious about your life. What you will eat, nor your body, what you will put on, Check this out. He's basically repeating a little bit, just saying it a little bit differently than verse 15 we've already read. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Okay, so he's saying, hey, there's more to life. Why are you stressed out? Why are you anxious? Why are you, why are you worried? What are you worried about? Whatever it is, it's, you're missing what life is all about. It's Life can be found in me. It's not in stuff. And typically what we're worried about is stuff. It's things. It's, we're putting our heart on those things that are temporal as opposed to the things that are eternal. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Exclamation mark. And which of you by being anxious, there's that word again, being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life. If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? In other words, you can't add a single moment to your life by worrying. That doesn't make any sense. So why are you worried? Verse 27, consider the lilies, how they grow. They, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. So what he's saying, anxiety, worry, it's, it's because you're, you're, you're revealing it's the fruit on the tree. The root is you don't have faith. You're not putting your faith in God. So it's our belief system that determines our behavior. So you look at your behavior, and that's symptomatic of our beliefs. He's just saying, oh, you little faith. You're not trusting God. You're not looking to God. You're not depending on him. You're trying to find your contentment someplace else. You're not going to him to do it because it's evident through the fruit that it's producing in your life. Oh, you of little faith. 
And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. There's that same idea, or be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father, your daddy, knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Stop there, stop there. Okay, don't, don't read anymore. Don't read anymore. Stop. Everybody, everybody look up here. Are you looking up here? Okay, and I, we took it off the screen too. You can't keep on reading, okay? Because did you notice that? They were quick back there, this third service, so they get, they get quicker and faster each service, okay? So, and the reason why I wanted you to do that, because some of you are trying to read it right now. Don't do that. Look up here. That verse, that next verse that we're gonna look at, um, if you could memorize and meditate on that verse, and begin to walk out the implications of that verse and begin to apply them to your life, you will not be afraid. You will no longer have inordinate fear or anxiety or bitterness or be upset about how your life's going or any of those things. If you understood what I'm gonna share you. Now, I just got back from uh, vacation. It was a good time away. And uh, one of the things when I go on vacation, is that uh, there's, a, there's a verse that I always kind of take with me, and it's Psalm 119, 114. And it goes like this, you're my place of quiet retreat. I wait for your word to renew me. And we typically, the last 15 years, we've always gone to San Diego, we've gone to the ocean. This year, for the first time, we went to Oak Creek Canyon. And it doesn't matter where we go, whether it's the ocean, Oak Creek Canyon, wherever it might be, it doesn't matter. It, what I'm wanting to do when I get away, is that I'm actually saying this to God, you're my place of quiet retreat. God, you're my place of quiet retreat. I wait for your word to renew me, Psalm 119, 14. So Phoenix, 110, Sedona, about 90, in the 90s. The further you get back into Oak Creek Canyon, the more north you go, 60s and 70s. Oh, baby. That's sweet. So we were staying right back in there, just kind of before you take those switchbacks to go back up to head towards Flag. You guys familiar with that? If you're familiar with that drive, it's a beautiful, oh my goodness, beautiful drive. And uh, it's that North Oak Creek Canyon, cool, crisp, clean air, towering canyon walls, lush green forest, the clean, clear water trickling over the rocks in Oak Creek. It was all beautiful, but that was a picture. That was a picture of what I experienced in this verse. Sounds crazy, but I was dealing with, on, on vacation, yeah, I was dealing with some depression and anxiety. And this verse came to my rescue. It came to my rescue, and I wanted to come to your rescue this morning, because I know that some of you are struggling with anxiety and depression and anger and frustration over life. Look at this verse. Let's, let's put that back up there. It's 32. Fear not, little flock. For it is, it is your, your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That, that's one of those verses that's worth underlining, circling, meditating on, memorizing. Oh, my goodness. Do you understand the implications of that? Fear not. Fear not. Little flock. Those are tender words. It is your Father's good pleasure to give give you the kingdom, the kingdom of God. That's so powerful. Now, I'm, I'll explain it a little bit later as we walk through that, but that, that's a powerful verse. It, it came to my rescue. It just it brought such, such peace 
and joy indescribable and indestructible to my heart. And then as he goes on, by the way, so notice he says, by the way, he says the Father's good pleasure. One of the reasons why we sin is because we doubt God's goodness. We think he's holding out on us. That's what Adam and Eve did in, in Genesis 3. And he said, don't you understand? Your father has your best interest at heart. He loves you. Oh, my goodness. No one loves you more. Get that crazy thinking out of your head. Don't fear. By the way, you need to know this, too, is that the most frequent command in the Bible is right there. What's the most frequent command in the Bible? Fear not. What's the most frequent promise in the Bible? I will be with you. This is more than an I will be with you. He's saying, I'm unloading the whole kingdom on you. You've got my presence, my power, my peace. You've got the wealth of my presence, the comfort of my love, the strength of my power. You have the significance of being called my child. Oh, my goodness. Do you have any idea what you have? And it's given. Did you notice it says, it's not, we don't earn it. Look at verse 32. Give you the kingdom. You don't earn it. You don't achieve it. He gives it to you. What was the cost of that? It was the death of his son for you and I. He died in our place for our sins. That's the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe have eternal life. His presence, his power, his peace, the kingdom of God. That is amazing. I almost couldn't even read that. And even as I read it, I, I want to tear up. Overwhelming. Let's continue reading. So, so the response to that now, notice this. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. You're not going to stockpile wealth. You're going to not make the things and the stuff of this world the, the goal of your life. Yeah, you, you'll still go on vacation. You'll still have a bank account. But that's not going to be your identity. It's not going to be your security. It's not going to be your significance. I mean, you're not going to be thinking, how can I raise my standard of, of living with every new raise? You're going to be saying, how can I raise my standard of giving? How can I honor God with what I've got? That's what he's saying here. It's because you understand what real wealth is. It's transformed your heart. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no, and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, this is a powerful verse, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So, th boy, this is, so if you think about what is it that you treasure, how do you define the good life? However you do that, it will capture your heart. Your heart has to do with what your treasure, but it also has to do with your mind, your emotion, your will. It captures all of that. It controls that. So it controls your behavior. So your behavior is a product of what you most treasure. Really great, great text there. This is God's word to us. Now, we've got a lot of work to do, okay? Because we haven't even gotten to the first fill in the blank yet, have we? <laughs> Good night. This guy comes back from vacation. This is going to be like six-hour message. <laughs> That's what you guys are thinking. No, it won't be because we'll, we'll knock this out pretty quickly. But look at this first one. Beware of covetousness. Verse 15. That's the first on your notes. So let's, let's dissect this a little bit. Let's work through this. He says, take care. Take care means, the Greek here means to recognize it when you see it. See, so the first thing you've got to do is you've got to recognize it when you see it. Be on your guard. The Greek there means to protect yourself from it. So recognize when you see it, 
Protect yourself from it. What is he talking about here? Covetousness. The Greek word here means a misdirected or out of proportion desire for more. So misdirected, it could be you want something that you shouldn't have or it could be it's something that you could you should have, but you want it too much. And in fact, it goes along with the next, it, it, des, it desires something. You desire it so much that you lose your contentment in Christ. It believes that God and his provision are not enough. And so, here's how I would explain that, contentment. We're talking about contentment here, or covetousness, and the cure would be contentment. But if you can't imagine, if you can't imagine being happy Right now, unless something changes in your life, then you have covetousness and don't realize the riches you have in Christ. I mean, in other words, if you're saying to yourself, and you know this deep in your heart, if I just had this, if I could just land this job, if I had a little bit more money, if I could just get my car fixed, if I could, why aren't you happy now? You don't understand the riches that you have in Christ. That's why. And you probably have some covetousness working in your life. See, his presence and approval are all you need for everlasting joy, and they are yours by grace through faith in Christ. You have his presence and approval. That's all you need for everlasting joy. That's all you need for contentment and satisfaction. And yet we have covetousness in our lives. Look at this uh, definition of contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. 1648, from his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, he defines contentment as the sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition or in every circumstance. He's just like, I'm just resting. I'm just chilling. I'm just enjoying life. It doesn't mean you don't speak the truth in love. It doesn't mean you don't stand up for what is right. But the way that you do that, you're not all stressed out. You're not all angry. You're not filled with animosity. You don't have an ax to grind. You're just resting because you know that God's got it under control. You're just resting in him. You're enjoying him. You're going to do what he tells you to do. You're going to do it in his power and his strength. You're not all stressed out. You're not all worried. You're not anxious. You're not angry. You're not bitter. You're not filled with animosity. You're not struggling and striving in life. You're resting because of your relationship with him in all circumstances. That's what he's talking about. Now, okay, here's your first fill in blank. About time. Number one, blindness to the condition is an intrinsic part of the condition. Blindness to the condition. That's why he says take care. Jesus never says take care, be on your guard against adultery. Why? Not because it's any less destructive, but because covetousness is more deceptive. Nobody wakes up some morning and says, hey, wait a minute, you're not my wife or you're not my spouse and why am I here with you? And nobody does that. You know when you're committing adultery, but you don't always know when you've gotten into the equally soul-destroying sin of greed, materialism, and covetousness. He's just saying, don't trust yourself with money. Don't trust yourself with money, especially in our culture of capitalism and consumerism and, and consumption. Next point, be very suspicious of it by asking yourself questions about it. So the idea is suspicion. That's why he says, take care, beware, be on your guard. That's why he's saying that. So it's like you're, you're taking a trip through the woods and they said, hey, there's bears up here, so be careful. So you hear, you hear something, and, oh, what, what's that, what's that? 
Start asking these questions. You're looking, you're, you're aware. That's, that's the idea here. So be suspicious of it by asking yourself questions about it. So you've got to be able to, let me go back to the definition. You've got to be able to recognize it when you see it and protect yourself against it. And, and some of us, I, I see people, they don't ever recognize it in their life. Therefore, they can't protect themselves from it. It took me a long time in my life to begin to recognize it. I mean, it started when I was just a kid. It's like I had the Stingray bike. You know, you guys remember the Stingray bikes? Banana seat. You know, oh, those were cool. I had some friends that had the long neck, and I wanted that. But then after a while, that wasn't cool anymore. I wanted a 10-speed. You guys remember the 10-speeds? And then it went from 10 to 12. And then from 12 to 18 to 21. It's like I got to keep, got to have the bigger bike, bigger bike. And then after a while, it's not cool to have a bike and ride to to high school on a bike, I gotta have a car, so I got a car. But you know what, I'm not really a car guy, I'm more of a truck kind of guy. And so I was discontent, and so I ended up getting me a truck. But the truck that I was gonna get was as soon as I graduated, I was gonna buy me a Ranger XLT truck, and I did right off the car lot here at Don Sanderson Ford, brand new, oh my goodness, eight track player and everything. Baby. And you know the crazy thing about that is that I had friends that had faster trucks and cars. And it, ha- it wasn't even off the warranty. And I took it down to Chuck Speed Center here in town and got a high rise manifold on it 780 Holly double pumper carburetor, <laughs> headers. Oh, baby. And my dad flipped his lid. He goes, This thing's not even off a of warranty. And you're already wrecking the engine. You just blew the warranty on it. Yeah, but dad, I had to have a faster truck. And so then I had the truck. The truck was fun for a while, but then I had to have a boat, and I got a boat. The boat was fun. It was a lot of fun. Go up to the lake, hang out. And then I had a buddy that bought a better boat, a bigger boat. His boat could pull four skiers. Mine could only pull two. And I was thinking, man, I got to get a bigger boat. But then I got married. I got married, and guess what? I sold the truck and the boat. We had kids, and we bought a station wagon. (laughs) And it's been all downhill since then. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. You know what? It took me a long time to figure out, this is a wild goose chase without the goose. I mean, this is Ecclesiastes all over again, Old Testament book, Ecclesiastes. One more, one thing more. Uh, uh, yeah, they brought a little bit of pleasure for a while, for a short while. Then I was looking for something more. That's true about, about all of us. Be very suspicious of it by asking yourself questions about it. We teach five biblical principles of wise financial management. I didn't put it on your notes. You'll have to go online and maybe download some of the messages we've done in the past or go to Dave Ramsey's class or uh, do something like that to understand them. But th- you really want to ask questions based on those five principles, like when the next purchase you make is like, do I need this or do I want this? What's, is, this is this part of my budget? Some of you are saying, what's a budget? And uh, that's a problem. Budget is planned spending. Are you planning out your spending here? That's important. And do you keep good records? Do you know where your money's going? And then do you know the difference between like true wealth and what you're acquiring. Are you trying to get from that what you should be getting from God, where he's the source of true wealth? And, and are you actually exercising good self-control? Is this impulsive spending or is this compulsive spending? Do you know the difference? And are you generous? Are you, are you leveraging all that God has for you for God's glory, for his glory? 
and ultimately for your good? Those are great questions. I love what John Piper says in his book, Battling Unbelief. He says, if the word of the Lord needed confirming, by the way, I'm basing it based on verse 15 where he says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. If the word of the Lord needed confirming, there are enough miserable rich people in the world to prove that a satisfied life does not come from having things. Watch the news and see if it isn't if it's not true that just as many people commit suicide by jumping off the Coronado Bridge in San Diego in spite of wealth as off the Brooklyn Bridge in New York because of poverty. So, okay, <laughs> it's gonna get more convicting, okay? Because we're gonna look at the signs. We'll do this, we'll do this quickly, but um, signs of covetousness. This is based on verses 20 and 21 where you got this distinction between laying up treasures for yourself versus being rich towards God. And, and what this is saying, if you hit any of these marks, which I'm sure you will, I do, um, and if you're really honest with yourself, then you're, you're probably heading towards covetousness, you're storing up for yourself as opposed to being rich towards God. Also, it's based on verse 34 where it says, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. So the word heart used some uh, 900 times in the Bible is a pretty important word in the Bible, and it speaks of our treasure, how we define the good life, but it also speaks of our mind, emotion, and will. You can see the the questions are divided up into those three categories, mental, emotional, and volitional signs. Here's the mental signs. Do you gloat over it? Do you gloat over it? You see it in verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. See, that's the rich fool. He's gloating over it. Look how much I've got. And so that can happen if you have the money and you gloat over it, or maybe you don't have the money, but if you elevate wealthy people, you go, oh, wow. You know how much money they got? Oh, oh. That would be just as guilty. Or to despise wealthy people, that would be the other extreme. You despise them. You, you have a problem with covetousness. Or do you worry about it? Verse 29, and do not seek <clears throat> what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. So this idea of being worried, so that's verse 29. Anxious, 22, 25, 26, 32 says fear not. So you've got it one, two, three, four, five. Five times we've got this idea of worry or anxiety. So you can be wealthy and gloat over it, or you can worry, be poor and worry over it, and both would struggle with covetousness. By the way, there's nothing wrong with wealth. It's our attitude towards it. So even people that don't have money can struggle with covetousness. You don't have to have money to struggle with covetousness. That's the point. Those are the mental signs. Here's the emotional signs. Note verse 15. He says, beware, be on your guard against all covetousness. The NIV says all kinds of covetousness. Let me give you two kinds. Here's the first one. Do you look to it for security? If you look to it for security, this is the one that I struggle with. You're going to struggle with being a saver. You want to save it all. Verse 24, he says, Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. So it has that idea of saving or storing. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Verse 19, once again, the rich fool. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So that was his security. 
Typically, when it's your security, you're going to be a saver. Here's what this guy is saying to himself deep in his psyche. Here's how to have control in an incontrollable world. Here's how to be safe in an insecure world. Have lots of money and save it. Save it up. And here's the crazy thing about this. This parable is the, of the rich fool is showing us that that's a lie. All the money in the world can't save you from bereavement, ill health, financial reversals, or relational betrayal, and finally, it cannot hold off your mortality. Only God, only God can give you things of value that suffering and death can't take from you, but only, but only enhances Suffering and death only enhances the things that God gives to us. And that's, that's part of that, that point. Here's the other one. So do you, do you look to it for significance? So do you look to it for security? That was my problem. Now I'm dealing with my wife's problem here right now. Well, let's talk about her just for a moment. Do you look to it for significance? She was a spender. Here, here I, I married my wife, and she was just happy-go-lucky. And I go, man, she's so carefree. I'm so uptight. I need somebody that will help me with that. And then we got married, and then I realized, wait a minute, she's a spendthrift. We're going to be in the poor farm before long, the way she spends. And I saw that when she came home from a shopping spree, and she brought home six pairs of shoes, brand-new shoes. Like, six pairs? Who buys six pairs? I do. And you're lucky I didn't buy more is what she said to me. I go, oh my goodness. And so I'm looking at her thinking, you got a problem with covetousness. And little did I know, I had just as much of a problem because I was kind of the security, you know, it was my security, I was the saver. So that's what happens is that typically people, the person that's the saver points at the ones that's the spender and the spender points to the one that's the saver. Well, you've got a problem with it. Well, they both do, okay? They both do, because you see this, uh, notice this one with the, do you look to it for significant spender? Verse 27, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. What is he talking about here? These are people who use money to make themselves feel good about themselves. They use money so that they can feel worthy, attractive, desirable by the cars that they buy, the homes they live in, and the clothes they wear. See, if, if money is your significance, then you have no idea if people love you for who you are, and, and it will eventually turn you into an arrogant person no one likes. And then there's the volitional signs. Do you chase it, verses 29 through 30, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. So you work too much, or you think about it too much. You can't say no to overtime. That was me. I was working, uh, when I worked construction, I, uh, yeah, I could say no to overtime when I was on the fire department. Constant man, is that what they call it? Constant manning? Yeah. And I just had a hard time. Man, you work one constant man for a month, baby. You're going to be banking some bucks. That's nice. That looks good. Oh, to the neglect of the family and to a lot of other things in your life sometimes. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, within reason. By the way, a lot of the financial experts would say that you need to save up at least six months worth of expenses for that rainy day or for when you get laid off. And also, you should be saving up for retirement. Nothing wrong with that. But this is what I found interesting about... Uh, about what's going on. That's the next one. Do, do you stockpile it? So do you chase it 
and do you stockpile it? Verses 33, he says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. And so we tend to overstockpile it. Like I said, it's okay to have a certain amount for expenses, When you have things break down, you need to have the money to draw on and then also for retirement. But I found this interesting, this stat, I don't know if you knew this, that there are now more than 30,000 self-storage facilities in the country. 30,000 self-storage facilities in the country offering over a billion square feet for people to store their stuff. In the 1960s, this industry did not exist we now spend $12 billion a year just to pay someone to store our extra stuff. It's larger than the music industry. Can you believe that? That's, that's America. We're just stockpiling all this stuff. We need, we need, we need all this stuff. I mean, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So, But that's... That's part of that consumption, capitalism, commercialism. And all of this, these are signs, signs of covetousness, evidence of trying to get from created things, covetousness, what we should be getting from the creator where we can find contentment. Thinking money can be your happiness or buy your happiness. The rich fool lived his life like you play the game Monopoly. How many have ever played the game Monopoly? Takes months to get through the game. Doesn't it? I mean, my wife said they used to play it growing up and they just leave the game out for weeks because they worked through the game. That's how he was playing the game. Accumulation is the name of the game. Money is how you keep score. And when you become master of the board, you are in control. The rich fool was so intoxicated with his self-absorbed life, admiring his wealth and the security and the significance he thought it brought him that he was like a skipper admiring the beauty and the soundness of his yacht about 15 feet before plunging over the Niagara Falls. (laughs) Little did he realize that life, like Monopoly, when the game comes to an end, and it will come to an end, it all goes back in the box. It all goes back in the box. All the money, the property, the possessions, the houses, the hotels, the railroads, the utility companies all go back in the box. So how do you, how do you break the hold of covetousness? Everyone wants it. Very few find it. The billion-dollar ad industry preys on our lack of it. Poor men are rich with it. Rich men are poor without it, and it can only ultimately be found in the good shepherd. Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What is it? It's contentment. Now listen to me. Contentment, everybody look up here. You gotta get this, you gotta get this. Contentment is not a technique to be mastered. It's a person. It's a person to be encountered, to enjoy, to experience. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, only he can bring you contentment. Only he can give you the contentment that your heart longs for. It's in him. He's the one you ultimately long for. Only he can satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. And in fact, let's go back to this verse. I want to kind of dissect this verse. Luke 12, 32. Fear not. I I think some of you needed to hear. You came this morning. You came this morning because God wanted you to hear that verse. Because that verse is for you. Fear not, little flock. Those are tender words. Little flock. 
It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I mean, there's so many things that I could, I could talk about as it relates to that. So what does this tell, tell us about God? Well, it tells us that he's a shepherd. Shepherds provide and protect and take care of their sheep. But it also tells us that he's our daddy. He's our father. But it also tells us something else, that he's a king. Because it talks about his kingdom. So think about this. When you, when you spend time hanging out in the throne room of a holy king who happens to be your father, who happens to be your dad, who, who has promised to provide for you and protect you and that you have his undivided attention and you have his unconditional affection and you have his um, unhindered action working for you and through you and around you for your good and his glory. Oh my goodness, there's no reason to ever have fear. And the only reason why we would have fear is because we're not living in the reality and the implications of that he's given us the kingdom. The kingdom. And when we begin to live in the reality of that, I mean, the kingdom of God, I, I wrote this down, the kingdom of God, the gospel is a rich, endless supply of forgiveness, healing, love, joy, peace, power, grace, mercy, motivation, transformation, and fullness of life, and the list goes on. But when we live in the reality of that, here's the next five things. Get ready to write. Here we go. This is, this is the byproduct of living in the reality of what we have in him and in, in the person the person of Christ. And by the way, you won't gloat over it. You won't worry about it. You won't look to it for security or significance. You're not gonna chase after it or stockpile it because, because you realize the wealth that you have in God. You become rich towards God. And you're not gonna lack that inner wealth anymore when you have him and you walk with him and know him. Number one, all that I long for is found in God. Be satisfied in him. See, the fact that you are precious in God's sight is clear because he purchased you at a great price. No higher price could be paid than the death of the Messiah. That's what he's saying. Little flock. That's what he's saying. You are precious to me. No higher price could be paid than the death of the Messiah, and that's exactly the price that God paid to redeem you. So the cross proves incontrovertibly and eternally that you matter to God. That's where you're going to find your status. Listen. Everybody look up here. This is the love. This is the life. This is the liberty you've been looking for your whole life. It's in him. It's in him. Here's the next one. All that I have has been given by God. Thank God. This guy thought he was a self-made man. There's no such thing. Did you know that our very breath, our heart beats because of God, everything that we have? Yeah, but I worked really hard with, with what? With what? you were given, yeah, your talents, your abilities, your opportunities, those are all given to you by God. Listen, if you were born as an orphan in Tala, Kenya, you wouldn't be where you are today. And so I put this on my notes, praise should it forever be on our lips, just for the sake of being born in America, being born here with the freedoms that we have and all that we experience and the opportunities. It's amazing. All that I have has been given by God, thank God. Thank God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't? Number three, all that I need is promised by God. Trust God. Trust God. He uses that idea of being anxious four or five times. He says, fear not. Needs are God's opportunity to develop our faith and demonstrate his faithfulness. So what is the sign that you're not trusting God? What is the sign that you're not trusting God? There's a lot of signs. Some of them are anxiety, anger, bitterness, depression. But I'll tell you one sign in our culture today that we're not trusting God. 
is debt. We get into debt. We get into debt up to our eyeballs. Our country's in debt. We're, we're overwhelmed with debt. We're all about debt. And, and none of us, none of us are not, in, and most of us are not in debt because some catastrophic event happened in our lives. No, this is typically how debt, debt works in our lives, is that, that we, we want clothes, we want a car, certain kind of car, certain house, certain toys. We can't afford it, but we buy it anyway. And then crisis hits, and then we're really devastated because we didn't plan out our life. We weren't living for his glory. We were trying to find our satisfaction and stuff. And it just beats the living daylights out of us. And so we, you need to know the difference between tool debt and plague debt. I'm not going to spend time talking about that. You probably want to listen online or listen to some of the message or go through Dave Ramsey course. We offer that a couple times a year. But uh, there's appropriate uses for a certain level of debt, but you want to ultimately be debt-free because debt kills freedom and generosity. And it just it beats, beats you up. And, uh, and yeah, for a, for a season, those things are fun. They kind of give you a high. They give you a buzz, but they don't last. So all that I need is promised by God. So I think that God would provide for us, but sometimes we jump out there and charge it and spend the money, and, and God's saying, wait, 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 wait. I, I want to teach you something through this, but you've run and gone, and now you're going to get yourself in a mess. Here's the next thing. So all that I need is promised by God. All that I give is rewarded by God. Give to God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7, uh, he, he talks about there, he says, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He's talking about giving. He's talking about generosity. Whoever gives generously will reap generously. And then he says, don't give under compulsion or grudgingly because God loves what kind of a giver? Cheerful. Cheerful. Hilarious. <laughs> yes. Do you have any idea how much I'm blessed? I want to show God how much I'm blessed by giving and leveraging all that he's given me. That's the idea there. And that's somebody that's living smack dab in the reality of this idea that he's given me the kingdom. And then I, I put that on there. So you want to give faithfully, save systematically, spend strategically. Luke eleven forty two. Scott uh, spoke on it a couple weeks ago. Jesus commended tithing, not, not legalistically, but motivated out of a sense of justice and love for God. So I, we teach the 10, 10, 80 rule. So the first 10% you give to God, the second 10% you give to yourself, Sock that away in the bank account, and then you live on 80%. Here's the last point. We're almost there. You guys have done well. Number five, all that I do is accountable to God. Live for God. He says, instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Verse 31. Romans 14, 12. So then each of you will give an account of himself to God. Next week, we're going to talk about living ready in light of the second coming. But 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You see, our beliefs determine our eternal destination, heaven or hell. Your beliefs determine your eternal destination. Whether you accept or reject Christ will determine your eternal destination. Your behavior determines your eternal compensation, whether you're in heaven or hell, as it relates to what you will be compensated for by how you handled what God has given you. You're either going to be, as it says, lay up treasure for yourself or be rich towards God. My prayer for you is that you'd be rich towards him. You'd experience all that he has for you. Here's the last quote from Jeremiah Burroughs, the rare jewel of Christian contentment. There is more treasure in the poorest body's house if he is godly than in the house of the greatest man in the world who has his fine hangings 
and finely wrought beds and chairs and couches and cupboards of plate and the like. Whatever he has, he has not so much treasure in it as there is in the house of the poorest righteous soul. So let's put that verse up one more time. This is the verse I want you to know. This is my prayer for you. This is my prayer. Fear not. Listen to me. Fear not. Fear not. Little flock. For it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Live in the reality of that. It will blow you away. And you will experience a satisfaction and a contentment unlike you've ever experienced before. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Love you guys.